So 13 weeks is uh, basically what it took us this summer to kind of hit the highlights of the book of Luke. Those of you here for the very first time, uh, we kind of spent the summer challenging as a church to kind of spend time in the Word together. Um, Maybe started strong, didn't finish quite as strong, but we kind of moved through the book of Luke. And the idea was is that what if we began to look at all the same passages together as a church and explore kind of God's movement through Scripture. And so uh, we've been doing that, and it's kind of led us down the highlights, if you will. And we started with this sort of announcements to the shepherds, the inbreaking, the incarnation of Christ way back in June. And it's sort of culminating, obviously, today with the resurrection. And last week we sort of explored Peter's denial, right? We explored the nature of sin and, and the beauty of grace and the necessity of repentance. And this morning we're going to kind of hop over from that moment to the resurrection. We're going to jump from those wee hours on Friday night to later in the evening on Sunday to what is really my favorite of all the Easter stories. And it's a story that I visited three or four years ago on Easter and we talked about a little bit, but I love it so much because it's not the one that most of us associate with Easter. It's not the story that we tied to where there's, you know, this kind of crowd-pleasing, jubilant celebration and we, we have churches filled with great things. This is a story of real discouragement and disillusionment and fear and, and life in the unknown. And I think it's where a lot of us live oftentimes in our relationship with Christ, and that's kind of why I love it. So we're going to cap off our study with this sort of picture. Now, we have kind of journeyed through Luke with a whole lot of things in mind. We've used words like gospel and salvation and repentance and humility and prayer and all kinds of things, and we're going to use just the word Jesus this morning to encapsulate all those things because he is what holds all of this together. So we're going to be in the book of Luke chapter twenty. Four this morning. If you have a Bible, I want you to go ahead and turn there. A little bit of a lesser known picture. What I want you to get out of your minds before we kind of jump in here and pray is I want you to get out of your minds that Easter story that you're so familiar with. The one where Mary and the disciples race to the tomb and they find the tomb empty and the angel's there and the clothes are folded and they, they sort of don't know what to do, yet they're excited, but they race back and they tell the disciples. And it's a story that we tell every Easter and we remember that sort of sunrise moment. I want you to take that and I want you to sort of put it aside for a minute because there's a lot of other things that are happening on that Sunday and we're going to fast forward to Sunday evening. We're going to meet a couple of guys that have just left this Passover movement that were hoping that this Jesus was the answer to all of their sort of problems, that he was going to redeem Israel and set their life up. And we're going to move away from the sort of jubilant, exciting, hand-clapping, Easter is the greatest, into the real emotion of what in the world just happened and why is Jesus no longer here? All my hopes were tied to him and he's gone. And what do we do with the real emotions of fear and disillusionment, even when they hit our lives? What do we do when when God seems to be absent completely? And I think those are the real things that sort of make this story compelling to me. Because I think a lot of times in our own Christian lives, we are moved to sort of replicate whatever emotion is happening with the masses. So if people are experiencing God this way or they're worshiping this way, we feel compelled or moved to mimic that. But in our hearts at times, we've got real struggles and real fears and we wonder why we're not feeling what everybody else is feeling. Maybe you know what that's like. Maybe you've been there. I certainly have. And I think that's what we see this morning. We see two guys that don't know what to do with their emotions and their feelings and they're struggling and they're doubting and they're wrestling with the real question of where in the world is God? 
And that's what we're going to visit this morning. So before we dive into that, let's take a moment and let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the fact that you are bigger than everything that we know. God, I thank you that you are not afraid of our questions and our questions don't threaten you. Lord, I thank you that our disillusionments are very much part of our story sometimes. Lord, I know that you have brought people here this morning from every walk of life. Lord, some are here because their spiritual life is amazing and things are going great and they're here to worship and hear the word. Some are here, Lord, because it's a Sunday morning routine and it's just what they do on Sunday morning. Some are a combination of both. I, I, I want to worship. I'm here on Sunday, but God, I've got some fears and struggles that are real. Some of us are sitting here this morning going, I'm not sure I won't even buy into any of this. Some of us are here this morning hurt and broken. Yet you bring us all to this place and you move in us and you draw us to you. And so, God, I pray that as we take the next few moments and we open your word and we begin to unpack it, God, that you would meet us, that you would meet our hearts, that you would draw us to you. Take a moment just in your own heart and just ask God to move in you. Whatever that means for you, God, just move in me. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you. Maybe you know their name, maybe you don't. doesn't matter. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you have given us your son, that we have reason to live and to love, and we have reason to wake and to breathe. And God, we pray that what you would show us this morning is that you are real and that you are present and that, God, you want to move in our lives in a radical way. So, Lord, we give this morning to you. We turn it over to you. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus. Amen. So, Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. Kind of a, a longer little read, but I'm going to do it anyway. So, um, hopefully it's not a foreign story. It's just one that most of us don't associate with Easter Sunday. So, this is a story of uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Now, on that same day, which was Easter, Sunday morning, the day of the resurrection, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast, and one of them named Cleophas said, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? Do you not know the things that have happened in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth. They replied, He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and the people. He was uh, the chief priests, and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman said, but they did not see. And he said to them, how foolish are you and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did the Christ not have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, What was said, all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. And so he went in and stayed with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and and gave it to him. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. 
And they ask each other, were our hearts not burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and opened scripture to us? And they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what has happened, it happened along the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. A lot of us know the story of uh, guys on the road to Emmaus. Um, a lot of us know this encounter, but we very rarely associate it with Easter Sunday. And I love it because I think what it does is it captures so much of my heart. Because I don't know about you, but this is a long walk for these guys. If these guys had gone to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, they had caught wind like everybody else that Jesus was the Messiah, that he had come riding into town on the back of a baby donkey, and that he was going to be the one that redeemed Israel. All the Jewish people had hoped that this was going to be the Messiah that was going to set things straight, free them from Rome, and reestablish their nation as a political powerhouse. They had put all their hopes on this Jesus. And then what unfolded was discouraging, just to say the least, that he had been handed over. The crowds had cried for him. They had yelled for Barabbas. They had crucified Jesus. And what is more, he had died. And then they had heard the rumors from some of the women that were there that his body was no longer there. And people had seen him, but these two guys had not. And it was Sunday evening and they were going back home because everybody went for the Passover and they returned. And they were walking the seven miles down the hill from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus. And it was a long walk home. It was that sort of discouraging walk home. Like when we left, we were excited, but when we came on our way home, we don't even know what to think or what to expect. We had had all our hopes that God was going to do this, and now he's nowhere to be found. And what is more, all of our hopes were dashed. I don't know if you've had one of these walks I've had several in my life, uh, moments where you just go, God, why? Like, I, I don't even begin to understand. I remember the first time I, I really could put a finger on it in a moment like this when I was 16 years old and my, my dad had had a heart attack for the first time. He would later, some six years later, die of a, a second heart attack. But that first time in my life, I remember my brother coming in. I was, I was at basketball practice. He came in. He he told me, because it was back before cell phones and all those things, and he came in, and we heard it, we jumped in the car, we drove to the hospital, and I remember racing in there and seeing him uh, being wheeled back to surgery and have bypass surgery and all these things and hooked up to all this stuff, and there was nothing we could do. And I remember leaving there and walking outside that hospital and just going walking because I didn't know what else to do. And I remember being 16 going, God, why is this happening? I'd never known anything like that, and I remember feeling like, God, why are you not here? Why is this unfolding the way it is? In my moment of greatest despair, my mind was not filled with, thank you, Lord. It was filled with, where in the world are you? And I've had those moments since then. Those moments where, where you, you had your finger on the fact that you thought life was going all right and things were together and then something happens or you're living in doubts and fears and you have to walk home going, God, why in the middle of what it seems to be most difficult time in my life do you seem to be nowhere? How come I feel empty and abandoned? Well, that's where these gentlemen are. They're walking home from this great celebration, celebrating the Passover is a celebration of God's protection of all of Israel, his deliverance of them from the hands of the Egyptians. Celebration. And on top of that, they had, they had put their hopes 
into the prophecy, into the promise that this Jesus was going to return everything to the way it was, just like it was when David was king. And all of it shattered. And what is more, all they're left with is questions. And it says that these two guys, they were walking home. And they were discussing all the things that had happened with each other. And Jesus himself came up and he walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. And he asks them, what are you discussing as you walk along? So here's Jesus, who they don't know is Jesus. And he's saying, what are, what are you talking about? And then in verse 17 and 18, it says they stood still. They stopped their walking. Their faces downcast. And one of them named Cleopas says, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? Do you not know what has happened in these past days? If you really read that carefully, what you see is this deep sort of brokenness. They stop their walk, they pause, faces downcast, and almost in a sarcastic way, Cleopas says, are you kidding me? Are you only a visitor? Have you not heard what has happened? And you can almost feel the discouragement in his voice. And of course, Jesus, in only the way that Jesus can do, says, what things? Right? Because it's a loaded question, of course. Because really, these guys had hoped for this sort of redemption of Israel, right? They had hoped that God was going to reestablish a political power. But I think what Jesus is getting them to is that how small their hopes were compared to what the move of God was, right? They had hoped for a redemption of Israel in terms of political power. And what God was doing was restoring heartbeats, delivering humanity from sin. That God's plan was so much greater. But Jesus says, what things? And they say, well, about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, right? Before God and all the people. The chief priests, they handed him over and they sentenced him and they killed him. And then he says in verse 21, but we had hoped. I think it's the most telling line in this whole story. Because basically what they're saying is, all that's happened, but I had hope in something else. And that is gone. I think there's moments in our life when we experience that, right? When we had put all of our hope in something working out, something happening, something unfolding, and it doesn't. We had prayed and prayed and prayed, and it doesn't happen. And we have that same moment where we stop and we had said, but I had hoped. And now I'm, I don't even know what to think. And if we're really honest, we've had those moments where God seems vacant or void. And I think that's exactly what these guys are getting at. They're saying, look, we had hoped, all of our hope had been in God doing something great, and he was gone, absent, and it didn't work out. And he goes on to say, and, and you know, what's even more puzzling is that after he had died, they put his body, and then it was gone, and some of the women came and they had seen him, but we hadn't seen him, and we don't really know what to do with that, Mr. Stranger guy. And then Jesus looks at him and he says, how foolish are you and how slow to heart. Did, did Jesus not have to suffer? Did Christ not have to suffer all of these things? Basically showing them in some small way that their hopes were tiny. And then it says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained everything to them concerning himself. Now, I'm sure you've heard some pretty amazing teachers, right? You've listened to Bible studies online or great preachers. But can you imagine Jesus starting with Moses and explaining? Dude. That's a killer. So he starts with Moses and he explains everything concerning himself, right? 
So they get to the place where they're going. They get to Emmaus, seven miles down the cliffs and hills and roads that lead down from Jerusalem, built on a hill, all the way down to Emmaus. And they get there, and it's getting dark. And Jesus acts as if he's going farther, like he's got some place to be, right? And they stop, and they say, where are you going? And he's going, I'm going to keep going. And they say, you can't go. It's almost dark. No one traveled at night. There were no street lamps or street signs. Traveling at night was incredibly dangerous for a lot of reasons. One, there were robbers and animals and stuff. But more so, in those days, the roads were not paved. And literally, in the Middle East, you could step off the side of a hill. Like it was, Jerusalem was up on this mountain, right? You just didn't travel at night. And so they urge him, please, stay with us, right? And Jesus says, okay. And they go inside together, wherever they were staying, and Jesus takes bread, and he breaks it with them, and it says that immediately their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. A lot of theological speculation here, right? Does the breaking of the bread would open their eyes? Did they see something? They finally put everything together. The reality is what I think we're going to, and what we're going to explore a little bit later is that the same way that their eyes were kept from seeing him, their eyes were open, meaning that God reveals himself, and I'll talk about that in a minute. God revealed himself to them, and they look at each other after Jesus disappears, and they said, were our hearts not burning within us while he explained the scriptures to us, right? They were going, holy cow, were our hearts not on fire? They got up and at once returned to Jerusalem. You can only imagine what's wrapped up in that statement, right? They got up in the middle of the dark, and they ran uphill seven miles to find the 11, right? Because Judas has already taken his life found the 11, and those that were gathered there with them, and they burst in basically saying, it's true, the Lord has risen, just as it happened to Simon, right? And they told him all that had unfolded, and they sort of explained the whole scenario. I love this story. I love it because it's not this pretty picture that we were raised to think Easter is all about, right? Where the women go to the tomb, and we all hire brass bands, and you know, amazing things happen and we celebrate that and rightly so but what was really unfolding 2,000 years ago on Easter Sunday was really a lot of questions it really wasn't this is Jesus raised from the dead and all that it means we have 2,000 years of history and experience with the Holy Spirit and life in Christ to add to that but these were first century right at that moment believers Jesus just raised what does that mean they were filled with questions and fears more than they were filled with excitement and joy and I feel like this story captures that. But there's a couple of world-changing things that I want you to see in here that are going to sound like a lot of things that I say, because they are, and scripture just keeps saying them over and over again. I think they're worth, worth kind of repeating. But the first thing that we, we see is that, that, that Jesus, he really just meets them right where they were. And I say this all the time, because scripture says it all the time, but God meets us right where we are. It's the very nature of who God is. Now, most of us live like we have to go and meet God. We have to clean our lives up, spend more time in the Word, pray a little better, quit doing this, break up with this person, whatever it is. Then I'll be presentable and I'll start going back to church. Or, God, I will really start getting serious about my spiritual life once I get married and have kids. Or once I get out of school. Or once I get my hand around this situation. A little bit more kind of financial kind of grasping and security. And then I'll be able to really give. I mean, we always have these things that say, once I do this, then God, you get this. And we think on some level that we have got to get our lives presentable enough to where the Lord, right, will be like, hey, I really appreciate the effort. Thank you for that. It's just not the way we see things happening in Scripture. God knows that you're a broken, sinful mess. 
He knows what you think and what you do. He knows what your heart looks like when no one else is around. He knows who you really are. In fact, God is the only one who knows who you truly are. Even that person that you're closest to, even your husband or your wife, they don't know you like God knows you, right? So here are these two guys full of disillusionment and despair. And God shows up in the middle of their lives. Now, there is a thousand better resurrection appearances, right? If you were going to make like a, a first big splash, all the crowd still gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover, wouldn't you show up there and be like, boom, hey, couldn't keep me down? Or show up at Pilate and be like, dude, I told you this was not going to work. You know, whatever, like there was a thousand better ways, more bang for your buck. But Jesus shows up in the middle of the lives of two guys that are broken and downcast and hopeless, He just shows up right in the middle of their issues and their concerns. He didn't wait for them to figure it out. This is the picture of spiritually what God does with us. He shows up in the middle of our mess. So quit thinking that I've just got to get a little farther, a little bit more mature, a little bit spiritually deeper, and then I'll be able to really give myself to the Lord. God shows up in the middle of our lives. Middle of our lives. And after he shows up, this is always the second thing we think happening with these guys, he reveals himself. I told you there's a lot of theological implications here. But Jesus reveals himself. He keeps them from knowing him and he reveals himself to him. And this is why this is important. God will never be a discovery of your mind. Meaning you will never read enough or kind of think enough or kind of figure out the universe enough and land on who God is. God is ultimately unknowable outside of his revelation to us. God reveals himself. Theologically, this is really important because it means your quest for truth will not end with God. God is the revealer of all truth. So here's what happens. Jesus shows up in the lives of these guys and he walks with them. They are kept from knowing who he is. And I love the fact that Jesus didn't just show up and put his arms around him and say, Hey, you know what? It's going to be okay. Don't be so sad. It's me, Jesus. He basically walks with them in the middle of their fear and hopelessness and frustration for miles. We want a God that fixes our problems and does it now. We want a God that takes care of our financial struggles, our emotional struggles, our relationship struggles. And we plead and we plead and we plead because we want those things resolved. But the nature of who God is, is not to walk into our lives and fix things, but to walk alongside us as he reveals himself. So Jesus walks alongside these guys asking questions. What things? Tell me about it. And I love this picture because every moment that these gentlemen thought God was absent, he was walking with them in the middle of their pain to lead them to somewhere greater. They had hoped that Jesus was going to be the answer to all their struggles and all of Israel's political issues, but their hopes were too small. They had hoped that he was going to reestablish them as a nation. Instead, what God did was he drew humanity to himself and conquered sin. So oftentimes in our life, our pleas to God to fix things, to do things in our life, to move in our life, are centered on what we think we understand and what we think we need. And God walks in the middle of our struggles and our fears to reveal himself in his powerful, mighty, amazing ways. His timing and his purposes are infinitely better than anything that you know or could ask for. So here are these guys, downcast and broken. And as they're walking, Jesus is showing them how small their hopes are. I've had those moments 
where God is absent, feels absent, where God seems to be nowhere. And I have pleaded and pleaded and pleaded, and God has not given me anything that I had asked for. The truth in the scripture is that God is not absent. God walks with us. He doesn't prevent our pain. He prevails in it, right? God walks with us all along the way, leading us to better and bigger things that are of his plan and his will. So God meets you where you are. He reveals himself. And then the nature, the question that comes next for me is then how do we respond? So if this is the truth of who God is, that God meets us where we are, and that God reveals himself, what is the response as a follower of Christ that I am called to or that I should have? Well, when we look at these guys, they have a couple of really kind of specific and powerful responses, right? The first is that they allowed their hearts to be changed. They even talk about it. They say, were our hearts not on fire within us, right? Were our hearts not burning with us while he talked to us on the road? That their hearts went from downcast to on fire for Christ. That when he revealed himself, they didn't just stay where they were, but they allowed their hearts to be transformed. To basically say, how wrong were we? Downcast and broken. So oftentimes God shows up in our life and reveals himself and we continue to just stay right where we are. We refuse to allow our hearts to be broken to a place of saying, God, I was wrong. You are amazing. They allowed their hearts to be changed, to be moved. They risked everything, didn't they? They got up in the middle of the night and they raced seven miles back to Jerusalem to tell everybody. They burst through the doors. They spilled it. They shared it. They talked about it. They told it. They proclaimed it. I love that picture that they risked, that they had heard this truth and it changed them, that they could no longer stay where they were. They had to risk. God moves in our life. God reveals himself to us, and most of us stay right where we are. We don't tell a soul. We don't risk anything. We just basically sit. This is how the church lives. The church lives from 8 a.m. alarm clock to 8 a.m. alarm clock, Sunday to Sunday, with people that come in here knowing this full truth that this is what God has done, and we walk out these doors unchanged and unwilling to tell. Why? Because my life is about me. The moment that Jesus was revealed to these men, they, they were changed. They burst out the door, ran seven miles, and told everybody they could find. And you know what happened? Everybody began to get excited, and they explained the whole story. It's true. The Lord has risen just as was appeared to Simon. And they told everything that had happened on the way. We are so complacent as followers of Christ. We are so hung up on ourselves and my experience and what I have and what I'm dealing with that we don't allow the truth of God showing up in our life, revealing himself to change us at all. Some of us are so self-absorbed, so much about me and what I get out of things, that I won't allow these truths that God has done in me to change me. Listen, the call of the church is as much as we see the call for these two men, that if we believe these truths, that Jesus has conquered sin and death, that everything that we experienced over the past 13 weeks, having gone from Jesus' birth and incarnation to those miracle moments, to all these things that lead us to this moment where he's victorious over death, meets us in the middle of our despair and hopeless. If all of that is true, how can we remain the same? How can churches be filled with mediocrity? How can we live complacent? 
We've got to be bursting out these doors. Roof coming off kind of jubilation and excitement over a God who has given us life. Meets us in the middle of it. But it all began with God's move. His stepping into our lives, meeting us where we are, and revealing himself. Then the question is, how do we respond? It's really fitting that we have communion today because that's the, the, really the medium by which Jesus uses as this revelation tool. A lot of things there, right? He had just, just a few days earlier, shared this meal with the disciples. But it was a revelation tool. For most of us in our churches, communion is a habitual thing. It's just something we participate in. The reality is that this meal was meant to be a tool of revelation and a tool of movement. It was something that we are called to remember, not just symbolically, but to be challenged and drawn and nourished spiritually in a way that would change us forever. But like most things we do with the church, it becomes a, a moment of sort of complacent, habitual lifestyle. Can't be. We have got to live changed. And these are the tools that Jesus says, remember what I've done. Remember what I've done for you. Remember how I rescued you. Remember my promises. This meal this morning is a reminder of all that God has done for you, meeting you in the middle of your struggles and fears, and maybe that is right now in this morning, revealing his promises as the lover of your soul, as the redeemer of your life, as the rescuer of your heart. What does this move us to? How does it change our hearts to respond, to proclaim, to risk, to cry out with our very hearts?